Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Alexi Normand. Alexi is the CEO and co-founder at Greenly. Now, given his expertise in carbon accounting and management, he is an ideal guest to speak with about some of the practical business challenges facing procurement and supply chain professionals who are tasked with responsibility for their company's ESG or sustainability programs. So, hi, Alexi. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Now, I've already set the stage in terms of what your expertise is and where you work. But before we get into the conversation, would you mind sharing just a little bit more about your professional journey so people can get to know you better? Sure. Before I started this company in climate tech, I was actually in a very different topic working in Boston at a company called Withings, which makes IoT for digital health. And uh, I was working mainly with health systems, supplying um, IoT devices to track health metrics around um, weight or uh, activity to prevent diabetes or chronic heart failure. And I guess the link to climate, of course, is um, we had built economic incentives for people to change behavior and live healthier lives. And when we started out Greenly, uh, the idea was to, to do the same, but around carbon footprint. How do you nudge people today to you know, improve their carbon footprint, do their part for the environment? Well, just like in healthcare, it's all about tracking and improving your metrics and having short-term rewards for essentially things that bring long-term benefits. So that's the, the very short story of how I, I essentially pivoted from digital health to climate tech. And it's quite a pivot. Um, now, it's interesting that you talk about short-term changes and long-term rewards, because especially once we consider the sustainability movement from the perspective of procurement and supply chain professionals, that's very much what we're trying to achieve on a daily basis. And given that that's where the majority of this audience is focused, we're going to talk about scope three emissions today. But before we really get into the topic, I would love to just have you give a quick rundown on what scope three emissions means for anybody that's not familiar with the terminology. Yes, of course. So when you uh, when a company decides to disclose its carbon uh, footprint, right, which includes CO2, but other uh, emissive, you know, um, uh, gases, um, essentially, uh, there is a, a standard which is called the GHG protocol, which uh, defines a set of categories for companies to report their emissions. So um, the first category is scope one, which is essentially all the uh, fossil fuels that you burn within your own premises or with the machines that you own. So it's the gas that you burn with company-owned cars. It's the, it's the gas that you use to heat your building. It's the gases that are used uh, for your air conditioning and so on. That's scope one. And if you have a lot of machines and you're burning a lot of fuel, you have a lot of that. Uh, but for services company, you have very little. Now you have so-called scope two, 
which is all the emissions linked to your energy consumption outside your premises. So if you are essentially getting a lot of electricity or heating from a utility, uh, so the actual emissions are with that utility somewhere else and they come and basically the energy comes to you through the grid, uh, but you're still kind of responsible for it because you're consuming all that energy. That's scope two. And to your question, scope three is basically everything else um, that as a result of your economic activity uh, leads to uh, GHG emissions. So let's break it down. Uh, typically, the biggest category is scope 3.1, which is all the emissions linked to your supply chain. So say you're a manufacturing company, you're buying a lot of raw materials, maybe you're buying a lot of aluminium, right? So to get that aluminium to you, uh, a lot of energy has been spent. So there are actually emissions linked to that raw material. And so it's very indirect for you as a company, uh, but you do have to account for it as part of your scope three. So all the raw material, all the products and purchases that you buy, it may also include things like, uh, so that's very relevant to, of course, uh, people working in supply chain. Uh, but you have other categories, so such as, you know, logistics and freight, all the transportation of these goods, what you, what you buy, but also what you sell if you ship to people. Uh, you actually also have the commute of your employees and their business travel, your consultancy and everybody flies all the time, east and west coast. Well, the emissions are with the airplanes, right? But uh, there's still a result of you flying around people. Uh, and then maybe, I mean, I, it's quite detailed, but just the last category of scope three, which is often overlooked, is uh, the usage of your products. So say you're a car manufacturer uh, and you need to put gas in those cars. Well, all the, say your general motor, well, basically all the people that buy your car, they're going to put a lot of fuel throughout the, your product's life. And so it's the, and so that has a lot of emissions. And, and for cars, basically, it's like 80% of their emissions. And as a result for um, car companies as well. So anyway, that's a very quick overview. Uh, but I would just conclude saying in uh, all those categories, supply chain tends to be the biggest category. So scope three is typically more than 80% of a company's emission. And as part of this, the largest single category tends to be your supply chain. So essentially all that you buy and sell. Now, when we think about you know, given all of those different types of energy consumption and environmental impact that you talked about, and we connect it back to this idea of short-term change, long-term impact, I'm interested about where some of the specific incentives come into this. Um, so for instance, what are some of the most common reasons that companies track their carbon emissions? Uh, a great question. So uh, th there are, um, I guess, three main sets of reasons. Uh, the, the first reason is, of course, compliance. Um, there are a number of countries where this is uh, an obligation. Um, in Europe, for instance, it would be if you have more than 500 employees, right? And now um, there's a new regulation coming in, which is called the CSRD, so a Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. It says any company that has more than 250 employees or is doing more than 40 million dollar of uh, euro of business in Europe will have to report its uh, scope one, two and three emissions. And that includes 
US companies, maybe about 5,000 US companies doing business in Europe. So um, compliance is one, and that is set to increase. You probably have seen that um, the governor of California has signed a bill into law, SB 253, which is any business doing more than $1 billion uh, um, in the state of California, uh, and that's about 5,000 companies, will need to report its emissions. So for larger companies, that's the main reason. Um, But now... um, you have actually a trickle-down effect of this because what most of these regulations are saying is you need to track your uh, full set of emissions, including your scope three, uh, which means you have to essentially make assumptions about the emissions of your supply chain. And um, and no one likes to guess. People like to measure things precisely. Yeah. So you have to start tracking basically the emissions of your suppliers at one point. And this results into a lot of procurement departments starting to ask uh, their top suppliers what their own emissions are so that they can compute their scope three. And so we see a lot of that. And specifically at Greenlee, we see a lot of, um, you know, mid-market companies, even SMBs starting to track their footprint. Uh, we typically work with a lot of Walmart supplier who is who have made this, you know, basically a prerequisites uh, if you want to work with them. The U.S. Army has um, introduced uh, this as a condition to uh, some of its contracts. I think if it's above $50 million a year or something, you have to report your emissions. So essentially, you're seeing a lot of companies um, uh, who don't want to be locked out of procurement, right, Uh, starting to track their own emissions. And for the small and mid-market companies, I would say that's actually the main reason because they don't necessarily have to comply with anything right now. Now, with my procurement ears, anytime I hear about different factors that will influence decision-making, I start to think, is this going to make my purchases more expensive? Uh, So if we start, whether it's driven by regulations, compliance concerns, a very large customer requires it. In your experience, does building or investing in building a more sustainable supply chain ultimately add cost? No, it's a great question because fundamentally uh, that's, you know, the, the very challenge we have with the energy transition. If we, if basically it costs less to be greener, everybody would do it, right? So, um, but I think um, there, there are two uh, levels um, to the answer I can give you. First level is it doesn't necessarily cost a lot to report your emissions. We're in most companies, most procurement departments are still at the point where they're baselining, right? So they're trying to figure out if they have to make reductions, where, the, you know, where that should happen. So basically, um, you... Um, you you can baseline your own emissions at a uh, just making assumptions on your whole supply chain with essentially a kind of spend based approach through software and that's relatively cost effective. Uh, so, but it doesn't mean it changes your practice. You can ask your suppliers to do it, um, and for them, you know, you you have solutions out there where the reporting is actually much cheaper than say financial reporting, right? Uh, but now to the real point, once you, you figure out which are your top um, spend categories, your top emissive categories, and you have to 
essentially, you know, replace. Uh, you have to show not just good accounting, but you have to show real progression. That's when uh, things start to heat up somewhat. And here, um, well, it's this notion of green premium. What's the what's the cost of switching from one uh, type of purchase to another? There are areas where it's cheaper to emit less, right? You see this in fuel consumption, and you see this in electricity consumption. Uh, if you if you manage to reduce, you know, the emissions linked to electricity, it's usually because you've shifted from using coal or gasoline or something to using renewables. And actually the, the economics for renewals now are, are better in many cases than the economics for fossil fuels. So you're, you're saving money on your scope too. Uh, you're, you're saving money, uh, reducing you know, the heating of your buildings, isolating them and so on. But, but it becomes much trickier when you have to choose between two raw materials. Um, should I buy this aluminium or, or that aluminium? And, and here the cost element is due to the fact that maybe you're buying uh, some of your raw material out of China where notoriously uh, the, the emissions are linked to how um, carbon intensive the Chinese grid is. And it's mostly coal, basically. Um, and, and so if you buy aluminium from China, it may be much cheaper, but it's also much more emissive. And now if you buy it from, say, um, uh, Sweden, where the electricity is very uh, hydroelectric or very um, um, solar uh, intensive, then it's actually uh, much less emissive, but it's also more expensive. So uh, that's the thing. And, and you've seen companies uh, like Apple introduce uh, criteria where they for uh, even Walmart does it. They, they force their suppliers to switch to green energy so that they can essentially pay the same price but have uh, lower emission uh, products, if you see what I mean. Now, one of the things I find particularly interesting about about this whole movement is some of the larger context things that have going on, especially over the last few years. I mean, the, the idea of sustainability or green sourcing is not new, right? Supplier diversity is not new. In fact, you mentioned General Motors. I mean, they were doing some of these things in the 1960s. So maybe under the, the label of CSR or corporate, corporate social responsibility, some of these ideas have been around for a long time. But more recently, we've sort of created this new umbrella because we love our acronyms of ESG. So we have environmental, social, and governance-based initiatives. When I talk to companies, especially in the U.S., a lot of times I'll ask about, you know, how do you feel the rise of ESG as an overarching movement has impacted something more specific like supplier diversity? And so I'm curious to know from you sort of the same thing around emissions and sustainability. Do you think this broader ESG movement is helping or hurting targeted sustainability initiatives? Uh, uh very interesting question because uh, uh, you know uh, ESG, if you think about it, is is fairly recent. I mean, uh, I guess it's been growing consistently over the last twenty years, and now it's it's reached a point where essentially every say, large or somewhat large company is doing it, uh, and you you start to and of course you can't criticize. Uh, you know, uh, the underlying idea that you need to have uh, good governance, uh, uh, be fair to your employees or, or respect the environment. But the thing is, it's 
become some um, it's become an object where there are so many criteria that uh, having a very good ESG score uh, doesn't tell you all that much about what a company is doing because uh, a lot of companies are essentially um, um, you know um, choosing how they weight their scoring. So uh, I mean I guess the the um, uh, the par- paroxysm of that is uh, when you have companies like ExxonMobil who have a very good ESG score because they're probably doing very well on governance and social and so on. Uh, but obviously, they don't have such a good environmental score mm-hmm. because they're they're pumping so much uh, GHG into the atmosphere, right? Um, and so um, I think um, I can't really criticize uh, ESG in itself. But as a person focused essentially on uh, carbon, I would say the emissions part of ESG is totally diluted into the other criteria. And now what you're seeing is uh, people are realizing that maybe fighting climate change is actually the priority. And they can't really use ESG ratings as a reliable way to assess whether a company is or is not on track, you know, to reducing its emissions. So I think um, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but I would say you need to um, single out the emissions uh, there. Mm -hmm. And and it's been shown by research, basically, um, looking at Moody's indicator, S&P indicators, Ecovadis indicators, that there is essentially no uh, correlation between having a super high uh, ESG grade and being on track to decarbonize. So I believe um, that actually decarbonization is the priority and that you need to have carbon-only ratings. And what these ratings uh, need to reflect is not just how good a company is at disclosing its emissions, but how it is doing at reducing them year over year. Has it formalized a strategy? Is it clear how it's going to change its procurement to Mm. factor in uh, emissions? Is it actually introducing action plans? Is it um, uh, actually reducing? Is it offsetting part of its emissions? And so on and so forth. So that's my my take on ESG. I don't want ESG to be political. I want carbon to be a technical um, topic that people work on so that we reduce our emissions globally. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned, I actually want to go back to and ask a quick follow-up because I feel like this is something we should call out. A lot of us, even in procurement and supply chain, are getting our initial education around emissions, around sustainability as consumers. We're actually hearing what companies are projecting to us as individual buyers as opposed to as corporate buyers. And so we hear a lot about carbon emissions offsets. So a company might say, sure, maybe we're not the most efficient, or maybe our executives are constantly flying around in private jets, but look, we've planted trees. Uh, Do you have an opinion on the the relative merit or effort required to offset emissions versus changing an operation in order to reduce them? Yeah, actually, I have a very strong opinions on this. Um, uh, so essentially, offsets in its in themselves are not a bad thing. But the, the problem with that is today, there are only about 1% of emissions that are available for offsets. So if everybody were to offset, there just were, you just wouldn't find enough good projects. Uh, and so if the only strategy that you have 
regarding climate change is to offset, you're not really helping fix the problem because, I mean, you might be by financing more offsets, but, you know, you would have to, to plant trees in the... Uh, there's just not enough land, basically, uh, to, for this to be a fully scalable uh, solution. So mm-hmm. the only problem I have with offsets is if it essentially um, uh, s- somehow absolves a company from not trying to reduce their emissions. And, now, and, and to make uh, matters uh, worse, I think a lot of offsets uh, have been actually kind of fake. Uh, there, there was a scandal last year because uh, what you buy essentially is, uh, you, there are two types of offsets. There are offsets that are avoided emissions and there are offsets that are long-term capture. And a lot of the offsets that were purchased were essentially... Um, avoided emissions so you're, you're paying to protect a forest uh, from you know getting uh-huh. cut or being burnt down but you are paying for a projection of the avoided emissions of that forest not being uh, you know cut down uh, and and part of the scandal was that the assumptions for avoided emissions were widely optimistic so you're you're buying a piece of paper that didn't have any you know, tangible value, basically. And so I think it has become a bit of a, uh, a liability to do this because not only are you paying a lot, but then you, you get uh, called out on greenwashing because nice. you actually finance something that had no e- effect. So I think it's, a, it's essentially a safer uh, strategy to first focus on reducing your emissions and then, of course, trying to find offsets, but just making sure they're high quality and they're not on the avoidance side, but rather on the actual capture. And that's much harder to do. So you can plant trees, but you, you can do uh, other things to capture emissions. Now, Alexi, we have a tradition here on the Sourcing Hero podcast. And so as we start to wind down our time, I want to give you an opportunity to participate in that. I'm going to give you two questions. You can pick either one, and there are no wrong answers. So your choices are, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? Well, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer the first one, maybe. Uh, what's a sourcing hero? So, um, you know, I think managing supply chains has been very hard um, uh, in recent years with uh, all the COVID uh, supply chain related problems and so on. Uh, but so a lot of uh, supply chain or procurement uh, managers have been focused essentially on just making sure supply chains work. But now, uh, why would it be heroic? Uh, well, essentially, you now have to add this uh, extra variable, which is what I'm buying. Is it um, helping me progress on a reduction strategy or is it not? And so I, I can give you the... Uh, I can paint a picture of what that hero looks like because uh, we, we've met a lot of them. It's basically somebody uh, taking the lead to say, well, now we're going to add this new strategy and here's how we're going to do it. Uh, a lot of companies, they'll start by signing up on a, on a pledge to reduce their emissions. Um, uh, the, the most famous standard right now is something called the Science-Based Target Initiatives, SPTI. And, and when you sign this, there are about 5,000 companies that have signed it, you essentially pledge to engage 60% of your suppliers on your own 
reduction strategy. Mm -hmm. That trajectory is defined according to your sector. So it's typically five, six percent reduction a year. And if you're in oil, it's 10. And if you're in food, maybe it's three or something. Um, and so you have to, so you have to start implementing actual tools uh, where um, you know um, you can reach out to your uh, suppliers, you ask them to report, you collect data from their products, from their organization, you track progress year over year, um, and you do this um, out of your own initiative. Uh, you do get rewarded actually uh, with you know medals and recognitions and awards and so on on this. It's it's built in those solutions, but. You um, and you have to balance this with actually what we usually expect of procurement managers is to just make sure um, you know uh, products come in and also keeping costs down. And so I think it's this very uh, difficult equation uh, that uh, people uh, need to solve. And I think what's heroic is starting it uh, and making it basically. Uh, a process that uh, people will carry out uh, uh, on and again, make it normal, basically. Well, I appreciate what you've shared. Certainly, there's there's been a lot of education in what we've talked about. But I think what I more appreciate is that you've shared your perspective. Certainly, your passion comes across. I think it brings life to the complexity that exists around this issue for people and companies that actually want to drive change versus looking like they're making motions to drive change. Alexi, if people are just meeting you through this conversation, what is the best way for them to connect with you or to learn more? No, that's great. So it's super easy. I mean, uh, people can actually write me an email, you know, Alexis, A-L-E-X-I-S, at uh, Greenly, uh, G-R-E-E-N-L-Y, dot earth, E-A-R-T-H, or just LinkedIn me. I'm very accessible and always excited to actually, you know, translate uh, all I've said into to practice. We do this all day long and we love it and we love it when uh, we get people on board. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.